Grayson Arbor. All right. We are continuing in our series called uh, Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, before we get started, I want to introduce you to a couple, uh, Chris and Rachel Wilson. They're a, they are a husband and wife uh, uh, duo team uh, that uh, has been candidating with us uh, to come onto our pastoral staff here and eventually uh, plant a church with grace. And so uh, Chris and Rachel are originally from Canada, eh? <laughs> yeah, uh, and they currently serve as associate pastors in a large church in the Finger Lakes area. And so the plan is during the summertime to uh, bring them out twice to get to know them more. This has been a conversation that we've been having for several months now uh, to have one of them preach today and another one of them as they come back to, to preach uh, here with us again so that uh, again, we, we get to know them, you get to know them, and, and uh, as we discern uh, whether this is a, a fit that God has for us. So today, uh, uh, will you just join uh, together as we welcome Rachel uh, speaking today God's word for us. Well, thank you guys so much. You're such a welcoming church, and it's been just a uh, privilege to get to see some of your beautiful community here. Um, really exciting for us to be a part of. Uh, I want to kind of help you feel like you can get to know me a little bit. And so, um, you know, obligatory family pictures. You've, you've met Chris, but some things that Chris and I like to do, we love to drink coffee, we love to travel, um, and we've been married for 11 and a half years now. Uh, we have two little boys. Uh, the little guy right there, he's almost five months. His name is Eli, and Micah is coming up on four in August. Uh, they're great kids. Um, and uh, we, Chris and I, just really love people. That's part of what we love to do. Maybe it's part of why we're in this line of work. We just love people. And um, that's where we spend the majority of our time is just being with people, being with our friends. Um, we did grow up in Canada, both Chris and I, and so uh, you, can, you can hate on that if you want. I know uh, that's okay. We can take it, and I probably won't even say anything bad. I'll probably just say, well, sorry you feel that way about Canada, because that's what we do. We just kind of apologize for everything for some reason in Canada. But uh, we, really, we really love Canada. It's a great place. Chris and I both grew up in this province called New Brunswick. It borders on Maine, and we always have to help people find it because it's kind of obscure. It's like a, a pass-through province. You only go to New Brunswick if you are trying to get to Anne of Green Gables in Prince Edward Island, right? Or if you're trying to get to the Nova Scotia coast, which people love to visit. We're just the pass-through, but nonetheless, it was a great place to grow up. And I want to tell you a little bit about my family history and, and help you get to know me today. Uh, my parents were the very first ones in their family to decide to follow Jesus. And they were in their 20s before they had even kind of set foot in a church. They didn't grow up in church. That wasn't part of their background. And it was first my mom who kind of came uh, to this decision point of giving her life to Jesus. And uh, through a story, maybe I'll have time to tell you another time, over like the next nine or 10 months, she was trying to coerce my dad into just stepping in the the through the front doors with her. Um, he just was so antagonistic, like that's not for me. I don't belong with those people. It was kind of a crazy story anyway. One day she finally managed to kind of trick him into going to church. And um, 
He had this experience with God. So here they are in their early 20s. And, and my dad decides to follow Jesus. My mom has made that decision. And they just throw themselves into reading the Old Testament and the New Testament and everything about Jesus. And my dad is just taken away, especially with the book of Acts, which describes the life of the early church just after Jesus has resurrected in this mission that is kind of burning in his disciples' hearts and how they live that out in their city. And so he goes to his pastor about three weeks after deciding to follow Jesus and he says, pastor, tell me, I mean, look at these people. Look at the compelling force for good that they are in their city. Look at how they are feeding the poor and healing the sick and people are even being raised from the dead. I mean, mind-blowing things are happening. When do we get to do this stuff? And the pastor kind of looks at him, and, and I, maybe he never had anybody ask this question before. He was like, you know, Mike, we kind of just like read about the stuff. We like talk about the stuff. We don't really do that stuff. <laughs> and my dad was like, okay, that just doesn't work for me. That's not really what I see to be this life of following Jesus ought to be. And so this is the home I grew up in. After that, my dad kind of started a missions organization that I've been a part of growing up and started doing inner city missions when I was six years old along by his side. And, and he really instilled, he and my mom, the way they approach life and the way they approach, if you follow Jesus, being on mission with every day and with every breath, they instilled in me this heart attitude of Take every opportunity to use the influence that you have. Take every opportunity. Don't let there be wasted opportunities because what you do really does matter and what you do really is significant for the kingdom of God. And that's why if you get to know me, I'm not really a person who is gripped by a lot of fear, but if I had a great fear in life, it would probably be that I would live a life that lacks significance. And I think we are a people and we live in a culture who has such busy lives and we are always trying to achieve more and more. But sometimes, I don't know if you can relate to this, I look at all that I'm trying to achieve and if you strip it back, I wonder, what am I actually working towards? What significance is all of these things that I'm spinning actually having to make the world a better place full of life and hope? I don't wanna live an insignificant life. I don't wanna look back on my life and see wasted opportunities. And when we talk about having influence in the kingdom of God, influence is primarily relational at its core. It comes through relationship. And we see this even in the life of Jesus and how he lives and moves in the world. And when I think of wasted opportunities in my own life and the regret that can come, I think of a friend named Seth that I had throughout high school and college. Seth was a self-proclaimed atheist. He always told me he didn't need God because he loved Bob Dylan so much that Bob Dylan was his God. I said, okay. He was a great friend, and we spent several years kind of walking lockstep with each other. But during this time in my life, I often reflect back and I think, what of Jesus did I show my friend Seth? I was going through some personal stuff at that time. I was going through this journey of loving Jesus and yet the people around me that were Christian, they were such hypocrites. I'm sure those only exist in Canada, right? 
They were such hypocrites that I thought, man, I love Jesus. I love what I see when I read the scriptures, but do I really wanna identify myself with this group known as Christians if this is really what they're gonna be like? And this is part of my own personal journey that I was working through as an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old. But Seth, this is what he saw of me. He saw someone who tried to show him Jesus but was really too consumed in their own personal struggles to really do it all the way. And when I look back on my life, I see a wasted opportunity and still to this day, I wonder what kind of influence or lack thereof do I have in Seth's life for the kingdom of God because he didn't see someone who was leveraging all of themselves towards Jesus. He saw someone who was unsure. He saw someone who was messed up in their own right and just trying to figure it out. For me, he's a wasted opportunity to leverage my relational influence for the kingdom of God. And really, when I look at what can be our barrier for influence, if we really wanna influence people for the kingdom of God, we wanna be this compelling force for good, for life, for hope, wherever we find ourselves in our workplaces and in our families and in our cities. What I find is the barrier more often than not is me. It's the selfishness that exists within my own heart and maybe you can relate the selfish desires that exist with your own heart. Sometimes we get confused about who's in the center and we love Jesus but we are so consumed with the personal journey that we are going through that when people look at us, what do they see? At any given moment they may see Jesus or they may see a person who is struggling through just like them. So what does it mean to be influential for the kingdom of God? What does it mean to remove ourselves from the center and to be people that as we follow Jesus, it's a burning love for him that is in the center of our lives and that is driving us on this mission to build his kingdom. We're gonna talk out of Mark 10 today if you'd like to turn there. Uh, we are just going to explore this passage of Jesus walking with his disciples. Jesus has been journeying with these disciples and this whole community of people that are kind of following him along as he's on the road towards Jerusalem. Jesus has predicted his own death two times previous to what we're about to read, and he is on his final journey to Jerusalem, which he knows will end in death, and he knows will end in suffering, and yet we see some of his disciples, James and John, they are so consumed with their own selfish desires that they miss completely what is going on and what Jesus is trying to tell them. So Mark chapter 10. I'm gonna just kind of tell some of the story and read you some bits and we'll have some scripture on the screen in just a few minutes. But in Mark chapter 10, as I've said, Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. He has his 12 disciples with him and then this broader community that is kind of following along. And in verse 32, it says that the disciples are astonished. I think they're astonished at the courage of Jesus. That even though he has predicted his own suffering, he continues to move towards the cross. And the disciples are afraid, but they keep pursuing it with him. Jesus says this, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Jesus is talking about himself here, using this term, the Son of Man. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Okay, I want you to notice just the 
emotional intelligence of some of Jesus' closest friends. Let's look at the next verse. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Like one of their closest friends and their rabbi and their mentor has just predicted his own suffering and his own death and they're like, Jesus, will you be our genie? Like we want you to do for us whatever we ask, blank slate. (laughs) And Jesus says, what is it that you want? And James and John say, we want when you come into your kingdom to sit on your right and on your left hand. It's here that James and John are so confused, they so miss that Jesus is on mission to the cross, that they are here vying for power. They are pushing themselves into the spotlight. They think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to set himself up as this great military leader who is going to overthrow the Romans and sit on the throne of David and all will be right in the world. And when Jesus comes into power, he will need someone on his right and someone on his left, and they think, why can't it be us? James and John want to be great. They want to be in the spotlight. They want to make a name for themselves. They want not only to help Jesus bring the kingdom of God, but they want to have their own kingdoms because they think that power and influence is power over, that it's domination. They want to be great. Don't we all want to be great? It was just a few years ago, I was in a meeting at work and my boss was talking about this project at this guy, I worked for this boss, he was kinda hard to impress. He was kinda hard to take by surprise. And he was talking about this project that he wanted completed, but then he said, you know, I really like to do this thing, but there's just, it just isn't gonna happen. You know, like it's gonna be too hard and too expensive to pull off and we just don't have the horsepower. And when someone says something can't be done, that's like the way I'm motivated. I'm like, oh yeah, like I will do it. And so I just kind of quietly went along my way, made the phone calls, pulled the project together. And when my boss found out that the project was gonna happen, he turned to one of my colleagues and thought that they had pulled it off. And he was like, wow. I am so super impressed with you. I can't believe you pulled this off. And I was sitting there, I was kind of seething, right? This is the ugly, okay? I was kind of seething like, man, that was me. I did that. I wanted the recognition. I wanted to be in the spotlight. Don't don't you feel that way sometimes too? Don't we all struggle in our own way to want to be great, to want to be recognized, to want to have some kind of power and influence? We all want to be great. James and John wanted to be great. I want to read you this quote by an author named Sky Jathani. He says, my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and my pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I wanna wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my own heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. See, at the core of it all, we're not that different from James and John. We all wanna be great. We all have this selfishness within us that misses that Jesus is on this journey to the cross and we are grasping and we are striving to achieve in our own right and to make a name for ourselves. 
And Jesus is trying to show his closest followers, this is not about you becoming great. Greatness in the kingdom of God is something different entirely, so stop grasping, stop striving, and let me tell you and show you what it is to be great in the kingdom of God. Jesus knows that he is on a journey to the cross. And James and John think that they are on this march of triumph into Jerusalem, that the Romans are gonna be overthrown and that it is gonna be like victory for Jesus and his followers. But Jesus knows he's marching into Jerusalem as a suffering servant. And he says, you don't know what you're asking me for because there will be two people on my right hand and on my left hand and it will be revolutionaries hanging on crosses by my side. You don't know what you're asking for. That I am going to drink this cup of suffering, that I'm going to immerse myself willingly in the pain of humanity so that I can bring life and set people free. So when you ask to be by my side, James and John, you don't know what you're asking for. You're so consumed with your own greatness that you can't see the way to be great in my kingdom is not through self-glory, it is through sacrifice. That's a point I really want us to consider today. Jesus' way of greatness is through sacrifice. It is not through self-glory. And James and John just miss it because they think that power is power over. And for Jesus, that's not what power is. In the meantime, I want you to picture everything in scripture happens with a very um, communal effect. There's this whole community that is listening into this conversation. And the other 10 disciples are getting irritated, not because they think James and John are doing something that's so terrible by pursuing their own greatness, but because James and John have gotten there first. And they begin kind of grumbling in the background and behind that there's this group of people that is following Jesus and following his disciples on the way. And Jesus takes this moment to gather everybody around and he says, let me teach you what it is to be great in the kingdom of God. This is in verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Jesus is identifying this desire that we have that is selfishness in our own lives, this desire to dominate over others, to rule over others, to have power over. This is something for people who are pagan and people who do not follow the way of Jesus. And then he goes on to tell them what greatness is in the kingdom of God. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, power is not power over. Power is sacrifice. Power is sacrificial love. Jesus is on this journey towards the cross. This journey not of upward mobility, which we are so familiar with, but this journey of embracing downward mobility. For our sake and for our ransom, he willingly leverages all of himself and steps into the pain of humanity. And he says, if you want to have influence, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, greatness comes through sacrifice. In the kingdom of God, victory always comes through the cross. 
It doesn't come through us making ourselves great in our own way. It doesn't come most of the time through the things we're really good at. Wouldn't it be comfortable if God just used us in our areas of strength? Wouldn't it be so great if he could just look and see all of your potential and all of how you are talented and that's how he chose to leverage you for his kingdom? But more often than not, he wants to use your pain. He wants to use your weakness and your hardship for our own growth so that we come to this place of relying on him and also for those around us because that is really when God can not only move in us but move through us. Power isn't power over. Jesus is saying power is power through, that through suffering, through hardship, through everything that you are as a follower of Jesus, you would give God permission to work in and through you. Your life, just like Jesus, broken open and poured out so that others can find the hope and life of Jesus. I know I'm so much more comfortable with Jesus just using me in my area of strength, and that's just not the way it plays out so many times in the kingdom of God. Jesus himself embracing suffering, embracing humility, and saying, take me, break me open, pour me out, because that is where healing and life come from. And this is the example that he sets for us. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. When we go towards Jesus, we're always going towards the cross, this life of sacrificial love. My family, I've already mentioned, they have uh, really, they're wonderful people. Again, we're all up in Canada. Chris and I are basically the only ones that are living in the States right now. And uh, they're back in Canada. We have been praying for my family for as long as I've been alive, that they would begin to step into this life that Jesus has for them. And uh, my family are amazing, but, but they just are consumed with so many other things in their life. And so it's been a prayer journey of 20, 25 years, 30 years. And at year 28, we had a breaking point. The very first person in my family, other than my parents, to come to step into that relationship with Jesus. And it was my Aunt Sue. And so my Aunt Sue is 50 years old. She's this vivacious personality. She loves people. She's stubborn and strong-willed, and Jesus is just changing her from the inside out. And so when you're 50 years old and you come to know Jesus, everyone you know, all of your friends, you have one giant mission field because everyone that you know is just an ordinary person who's trying to figure life out and the people that she runs with, they're awesome people, but they're people who are searching. They're searching in their hearts and searching in their souls for that life and have not found it yet. And so she is positioned perfectly to be on mission in sharing Jesus with them and almost Immediately after she became a Christian, maybe a year in, she gets terminal cancer. And it has been so amazing to watch this cancer, which is speaking a death sentence over her life, become part of the way that her friends see her and see the strength that Jesus gives her every single day that this hardship, this pain that she would have to face, which is grueling, grueling physical pain, grueling emotional and mental stress, and yet through it all, her posture is that my God has got this. And she is so amazingly positioned from a point of weakness, from a point of pain and hardship to be able to share Jesus, 
Isn't this how the kingdom of God works? That God wants to leverage all of us and most often he wants to leverage our weakness. He wants to leverage our pain in order to build his kingdom. Sacrifice and sacrificial love changed the world 2,000 years ago when Jesus stepped into humanity so that we could see what the living God, what he really is, who he really is, how he longs to heal us, how he longs to bring hope and life and intersect us in our broken places. He leveraged all of himself towards us, towards our ransom, because when Jesus looks out, Jesus doesn't have friends and enemies. He sees everyone as someone who needs rescued, as someone who is worthy of rescuing. And he wants to teach us to see people not ever as enemies, but as prisoners of war. That's this whole metaphor of ransom. Jesus lives this life of self-sacrifice, that he would leverage all of himself towards our freedom and our healing. Sacrificial love changed the world 2,000 years ago and it is changing the world today. And this is how we as Christians are to have influence when we live out this life modeled by Jesus of sacrificial love. It is not easy, it is messy. And too often we wanna love to the point until it starts to cost us something. That's just loving in our own strength. Jesus says, I wanna take you so much deeper. I wanna teach you how to love other people, even people that the world would consider your enemies. I wanna teach you how to love other people like I love you, with an unconditional and sacrificial love that never runs dry. Even stepping into the most difficult situations and difficult places and exhibiting this love. One of my best friends in the world is my sister. Her name is Megan and she and her husband uh, she felt like this call in her life to step into foster and adoption and meet this need for children who did not have homes. And they had this beautiful little boy come into their home as a foster child, and they had him for 18 months. And somewhere the tide turned and it looked like they were going to adopt him. One day they walk into court and they think that that judge is gonna say, this child is yours, you can call him son, he's going to be with you forever. And when they walked out of the courtroom, everything had gone haywire. And what actually had been decided was that the child was going to go back to another family member. And for them, thinking of this child which they considered their son, that they were going to lose him, has been a journey of tremendous pain in their life. But my sister originally stepped into this because she wanted to come alongside a young birth mom and pour into her the sacrificial love of Jesus. Now it was so costly. How would she ever do that in the midst of her own journey, in the midst of her own pain? And it's been so messy. It was such a long time that they had this young child. They lost him. He went back to his birth mom. This little guy who had called them mommy and daddy, it felt like, felt like their child had died. And still my sister is reaching out and trying to pour her life into his mom, into this child, even though he's not hers. And nothing, after the child returned to his home, no point of contact for four months. And just the ache inside their family, the ache inside their soul and the suffering that they're carrying just when they're beginning to heal and move on, just a few weeks ago, the birth mom reaches out to my sister and says, I think I'm open to a relationship with you. 
This is a story that is so messy and so difficult, involves so much personal pain and cost to ourselves as followers of Jesus when we step into the broken places of other people and we say, I'm doing this not for myself, I'm doing this because I want you to experience the love and the hope that I have found in Jesus Christ. And it's not easy. And yet, sacrificial love is what changes the world. It's the way that we as Jesus followers have influence in our cities, in our workplaces, in our own families, in our own relationships. Sacrificial love still changes the world. And the call that's upon our lives if we follow Jesus is not to our own greatness. The call that's on our lives is to make his name great. The call that's on our lives is to bear this call of sacrificial love that we would walk towards the cross with Jesus, that we would realize that the kingdom is built as we step into the brokenness of people who don't know Jesus, and we love them as Jesus has loved us with an unwavering and unconditional love. Because in this, God is able to bring healing, he is able to bring life. When we submit ourselves and say, God, we leverage all of ourselves towards building your kingdom. Do what only you can do. Bring the life that only you can bring to this dead situation, this dead circumstance, this brokenness that seems like it will never be rectified. God, you're the God who raises the dead and your spirit lives in us. Pour your spirit through us. This kind of sacrificial love that builds the kingdom is never something we do in our own strength. It is always God working in us and through us to join him in this project of redemption. So I wanna ask you today simply as we close, where is God speaking to you about your own struggle for greatness? Where is he speaking to you about the grasping and the striving that would be that internal piece of selfishness that we all struggle with? Where is he asking you to leverage all of yourself because he has given all of himself for you? If you're here today and you follow Jesus, our lives are not our own, we've been bought with a price. We've been ransomed and now we live for the king. And so many times we hold back pieces of our lives and say, Jesus, I think I'll keep this piece for myself. When he says, what I really want you to do is live life with an open hand and leverage all of yourself towards me. Perhaps there's a person that you're thinking of right now that you need to step into their suffering. You need to step into their situation with the love and the hope of Jesus and say, Jesus, do what only you can do, but I'm gonna be your presence here. I'm gonna love this person in my life as you have loved me. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for your living and breathing presence. We thank you for your word. And God, how you always challenge us to walk deeper into your love, not only for ourselves, but that everything that you have done for us and everything that you have done in us, God, you wanna do for the people in our lives that don't know you. May we be a people who bear your name well, who carry your mission well, who live this countercultural life of sacrificial love in such a way that redemption is brought wherever we go that we can join you in building your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. Amen.